WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. We are just under 500 days out from the 2024 election. But the race for governor here in the Target State already heating up. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson leading the pack, but a former North Carolina congressman and Senate candidate is looking to take the lead. And then a bit later, we are digging into a monumental ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court on a North Carolina case that could guide congressional and presidential elections for years to come. But first, joining us now from Greensboro, Republican candidate for North Carolina governor and former congressman as well, Mark Walker. Welcome back to Flashpoint, Mr. Walker. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. All right. So why is now the time to run for governor? Well, I think it's a very crucial time in our state. If you look at our history, we've had one Republican governor elected in the last 31 years, only three in our entire North Carolina state history. And I think with our background, uh, having run our own business, a pastor for 16 years, and having chaired the largest caucus in the United States Congress, the experience of working with legislators, the, the ability to manage and to lead others, I think this is the time for us to engage probably more than any other time in my decade of political history. Do you think overall, do you think the state of North Carolina is, is headed in the right direction right now? I think so. If you look at the, in 2022, uh, we were able to elect uh, seven statewide races, Republicans. In fact, if you look at the, the, the judges races, the judicial races, there were two Supreme Court, four Court of Appeals. The Republicans won those by an average margin of 6% plus. But I think it also shows that the quality of candidates, somebody with a background, the ability to be able to build bridges, not just blow them up, but be able to also have a background of conservative principles and credentials, a record that can prove that, I think that's what the state is looking for. Remember this, Republicans are the smallest party. We only make up 30% of the entire block of registered voters. So you have to have someone, someone that can actually reach in to the unaffiliated voters and maybe even a few Democrats to be able to share your message. No Republican in the state has that record like we do. That's why we push through this to be able to move forward to become the next governor of North Carolina. In a Walker administration, what would be your top priority? Top priorities has got to be education. We're making some strides there. But when we look at education, it needs to be bottom up reform. When I was in Congress, I led a specific bill that stripped away any of the federal mandates, but allowed the federal funding, which is about 10% to continue to come into the state. What we have to do, and we've started that about funding systems, not the students, but we can't leave the other students behind. We wanna make sure that we are not having any ideology that's taught. The other thing about education, for many years, we have been programmed to teach uh, many of the students uh, what to think, but not necessarily how to think. Those critical thinking skills are very important. It also bleeds into our community colleges to be able to fill some of the later sh labor shortages, partnering with industry. We can unpack that at, at, hopefully at a, at a point in the future as well. Uh, current Republicans in the General Assembly have been criticized by groups um, for not focusing enough on public education. Do you feel like that criticism is fair? I think sometimes it is, uh, because if you look at a, a good education is the bridge. North Carolina had 124,000 people moved here, moved here just last year, only behind Florida and Texas. We've got the second most paved roads in the country, but we're 22 in our port size. How does education play into that? 
There's a bridge that you build from the bottom up that you're identifying these skills and talents. This is something that we can do in North Carolina. As I said, we don't have to take a backseat to Florida or Texas. We're on the precipice of having an economy that is second to none. We have the business background to be able to go in the boardrooms, to be able to compete with South Carolina, Virginia, Florida, Texas, whoever it might be. And that's one of the basis of why we felt like that we have the skill set and the experience to be able to do the job. This weekend, the 12 week abortion ban goes into place. Um, would you like to see that abortion law go further? Would you like to see stricter abortion laws here in North Carolina? Any time that we have an opportunity to protect as many lives as possible, I would be more than happy to sign that bill. I remember serving on the House Oversight Committee asking point blank to the, at the time, the director of Planned Parenthood, Cecile Richards, and I asked her just one question in the five minutes that I was lauded. Does it bother you that there are more African-American babies aborted in New York State than actually born? Uh, she didn't have an answer for that. But we want to focus certainly on the life. We also want to focus on some of the very difficult decisions that these mothers are faced with. Not everybody has a background of support. So we want to make sure that we're providing all the options. But anything put to my desk that, that protects life, we will, we will certainly sign it. Uh, you are a man of faith, and there are a number of religious leaders that came out against the sports betting uh, from this past session. Uh, was it the right move to sign it into law? I struggled with it. Uh, you mentioned as a person of faith, uh, more than that, as a senior pastor, uh, as well as some other pastor roles of counsel people, anytime that you have something that has a tendency to lead to addiction, uh, we have to be careful. At the same time, America, when it comes to a liberty for our adults, we also want to create the space that if, as long as you're not harming somebody in this country, you ought to be able to have the liberty to be able to choose and pick what you want to do. Where we've seen this thing really move in the, in the recent years, maybe the last five or six years, not just in the sports betting aspect, but as, a, as an ideology as a whole for the progressive left is targeting the children, the children and the families. And I think that's where you're having a lot of Republicans, a lot of conservatives, a lot of common sense people begin to push back. Um, it's no secret you lost a Republican nomination to uh, Ted Budd in the U.S. Senate race last year. What makes this statewide election different when you're up against someone, say, like Mark Robinson? Well, I think I think it's a completely different race. I, I would say that we were uh, seven and zero. We were undefeated in primaries, D.C. elections, as well as Congress leading into that. Uh, there were a lot, certain a lot of factors. Uh, President Trump, who had promised his support for us early on, uh, shifted to that support, which was fine at the time. And specifically, when uh, his nominations or endorsements uh, were carrying a ton of weight, uh, I think this race comes down to who is qualified, who has the experience. Uh, Mr. Bud's a good man, um, has served there in Congress, as well as also has some business experience. Uh, I, I don't know that you can say that uh, the lieutenant governor has the qualifications to be able to do so. I'm not going to get into his entire background, but when you have a 30-year history of financial issues as well as legal issues, uh, that, that, that that's a scrutiny that the Democrats, they're not going to leave any stone unturned. But I also think that's one of the reasons that he is falling behind so much in the unaffiliated voters. And if you can't win the unaffiliated voters, you cannot win a statewide election in North Carolina. Uh, why do you feel like someone like uh, Mr. Robinson resonates so much with some GOP supporters, despite some of the things he said um, and despite his detractors out there? I think there's always a part of our base. In fact, listen, there's some of the speeches that I that I would stand up and applaud. But I think if you're only focused on the rhetoric and not the results, I think that's problematic. And I think we have to be careful that we only, there was someone said the other day that I thought was very good, 
our job and leaders or, or people who have a platform, it's not just to tell people what they want to hear, it's also to inform them what we need to know. Uh, that's that's a discipline that's, that comes from experience. And I think placating to only just to the uh, to the I guess the, to the red meat portion of our, our of our policies. Uh, look, you know, we have problems with Joe Biden. We have problems with the border. I've been there. There's the ranking member on intelligence counterterrorism. But what we we're not hearing from Lieutenant Governor are the solutions. Uh, how do you get some of these things resolved? And I think if you've never been in a position, whether business, life, ministry, politics, where you're actually solving these problems, I think I think it's a I think it's a different approach that you have to learn and have to take as the chief executive as opposed to someone without that background experience. Uh, this week, I thought it was interesting, um, former Wyoming Congresswoman uh, Liz Cheney, also was a, a leader within the GOP for a long time, um, said of her own party, of your party, th that, quote, we need to stop electing idiots. Do you agree? Well, I mean, I don't want to tie that to the lieutenant governor with back-to-back -back questions, but I think anybody would agree on any side of the party that you don't want to uh, to use your word to elect an idiot. I, I think we have to find people whose integrity matches their words, whose lifestyles, when you're talking about fiscal responsibility, uh, matches their life. Uh, we saw uh, some problems with, uh, with, with Herschel Walker in Georgia, Mastriano in Pennsylvania that once they got past the primary, they did not have the credentials, experience, or the background to be able to push through. Uh, and Republicans have made that mistake a time or two. The reason that we're engaged, the reason that we're walking away from our business right now to maybe face $25 million of, of attacks on us uh, from the Democrats at some point is because we love North Carolina, we believe it's worth fighting for, and I believe uh, with all my heart that as, as as, as big as a role the lieutenant governor could have in some areas, I don't think that he has the background of qualifications. And frankly, I just don't think he can beat Josh Stein. Uh, you rightfully so distinguished. Those two back-to-back -back questions were, were not related to one another. So I, I'm, I am glad that you pointed that out. All right, former Congressman Mark Walker. Uh, former Congressman, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Always a privilege. Thank you so much. Take care. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court handing down a major decision stemming from the battle over district lines right here in North Carolina. In a 6-3 decision, the high court rejecting a fringe election theory from North Carolina House Speaker Tim Moore. The big takeaway here, folks, justices say state legislatures need some oversight from state courts when dealing with federal elections. Joining us now is Richard Verfault. He is one of the nation's top legal scholars at Columbia University. Professor, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, so this case all centered around something called the independent state legislature theory. The court rejecting the idea that state lawmakers have sole authority in federal elections. Give us your insight and some background about why this concept is considered fringe and why it was such a, a important ruling. Sure. The independent state legislature as an idea, I mean, the theory is something that was really developed just in the last couple of years. And as you said, it's the it, the argument is that state courts, particularly state courts interpreting state constitutions, have no role to play in interpreting or applying state election laws as they affect federal elections, congressional and presidential elections. It, it builds off of some language in the Constitution that says that the state legislatures shall determine the time, place, and manner of federal elections. Um, now, traditionally, almost all of our election laws are state laws, 
Um, and all of our states have state courts and state constitutions. And the issue came up because state courts have been interpreting their state constitutions in ways that impact the application of state election laws to federal elections. The case in North Carolina involved gerrymandering. The North Carolina Supreme Court said that the North Carolina Constitution prohibited gerrymandering in state and federal elections, and that was challenged on the idea that they could not apply this state constitutional uh, gerrymandering ban to federal elections because only the state legislature can determine the rules for federal elections. That was the claim, and that was the claim that the U.S. Supreme Court rejected. And at the risk of really confusing our viewers at this point, mm -hmm. pra practically speaking, in the near term, this probably doesn't change much here in North Carolina because now we no. have Republicans right. in charge of the state Supreme Court and Republicans in charge in the General Assembly. Explain that. Yes. One of the surprising things about the decision is that there was a decision at all. So as, as you point out, when the North Carolina Supreme Court first acted, it was in 2021, at that point, the majority of the justices were Democrats, and they're the ones who determined that the state legislature had, ad had adopted a Republican gerrymander and threw it out. After the 2022 election, the, the partisan control of the North Carolina Supreme Court changed, and the North Carolina court basically changed its mind and took on another case, which basically said we're repudiating the 2021 decision, and we're finding that there is no gerrymander. So many people thought the Supreme Court would not actually decide this case. Indeed, they asked for extra briefing. Uh, and one significant part of the opinion uh, is that the case is not moot. That is the case. It's not over. The 2021 decision was never overruled. The court simply, the North Carolina court simply said, we're not following anymore. But technically, what the 2021 decision did was throw out the 2021 state legislative plan. And in fact, that's still thrown out and a new legislative plan is being adopted. So the court said it's not moot. I think uh, there was a dissent on that. I think to that point, I think the court felt that they were gonna have to decide this question sooner or later. It had been raised in a number of cases after the, during the 2020 election, and the majority of the court never directly addressed it. There are cases from other states where it's percolating, where this kind of issue is percolating along. Case was fully briefed. It was intensely argued. I think the oral argument was more than two hours. And I think the court felt it was probably gonna be useful to just make a decision on this now, even if uh, you could argue that the North Carolina case was moot. So long-term then, the implications of this ruling, does this set a precedent? So there's not the constant back and forth and every two years you have a different court ruling, something else at the state level, or will those things continue? Those will probably continue. I mean, in some ways, they may be more so because the court is basically saying um, state courts have a role to play in interpreting state constitutions and state election laws, even when it affects federal elections. So in some ways, this um, just underscores the significance of state courts and who runs them, who are the justices on state courts. And it also says the court said, although it rejected the extreme version of a theory, the court did say even though state courts do have an important role to play and we will normally defer to them, we're not going to completely advocate a federal rule. We will, as the U.S. Supreme Court, review state court decisions when they impact federal elections to make sure that the state courts have not acted in a completely arbitrary way. So in some ways, we're, we're still likely to see lit lit litigation on this, 
But the real bottom line is the court said state courts and state constitutions do have a role to play uh, in it, in even in regulating federal elections. As a, as a system of checks and balance, it came down to a 6-3 ruling. Did that surprise you? Um, not completely. Um, the or in the oral argument, it did look as though the let's call them the justices in the middle, uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, were not were not persuaded by the extreme in, independent state legislature theory that state courts have no role to play, that state constitutions have no role to play. So I think they were looking for something like a middle position, and that's what this was largely. I'd say it was a. Uh, like a 70, 80% rejection of the independent state legislature theory, but a little of it holds on when the court's saying that although state courts can interpret and apply their constitutions to state election laws, um, Supreme Court will review to make sure those state courts have got, not gotten, have not done something completely out of whack. Uh, you touched on this, but how, how do you see, how could future cases interpret this decision? Well, I think a lot of it will turn on that last little bit. What does it mean for a state Supreme Court to adopt a ruling which is uh, arbitrary or um, seems to be an abuse? All right, Professor Richard Buffalt of Columbia. Professor, thanks for coming on and explaining all this to us. We do appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. More Flashpoint after this. Yet another North Carolina homeowner won't lose her house after WCNC Charlotte asked, where's the money? Over the last year, we've reported extensively on the plight of people who applied for pandemic mortgage help through the often slow to deliver North Carolina Homeowner Assistance Fund. As we continue to advocate for those waiting for urgent help with their monthly payments, Nate Morbido discovered the same company North Carolina hired to run the program here could very well lose its contract in another state after similar problems. This has been the most stressful thing I've ever been through. A frazzled Kay Blinton has sent us more than three dozen emails since September. You just been a lifesaver. Asking for help, securing her first mortgage relief payment. I probably would be out of my home by now. And more recently, collecting her last through the North Carolina Homeowner Assistance Fund. It took, what, five months to get January? The state's housing finance agency signed a $23 million contract with IEM, a North Carolina-based disaster recovery company, to run the pandemic program. More than a year and a half later, we feel like we've turned the corner on the process. Executive Director Scott Farmer says the process has become fairly seamless, thanks to IEM dedicating more resources to be more responsive. I really don't want to lose it. They just told me to be patient with the process. Just concerned. But that came only after homeowners reached out to us and complained about waiting at length for their assistance. Some even started receiving foreclosure notices. We do appreciate uh, the fact that you have continued to follow up and help, try to help folks that are, that are facing challenges. While Pennsylvania is reviewing its relationship with IEM before making a final decision about terminating the company. I think that we've seen a lot of improvement. North Carolina hasn't felt the need to go so far as even penalizing the company. We had a different project management team than Pennsylvania did. Beyond that, IEM reports receiving three times fewer complaints in North Carolina compared to Pennsylvania and calls North Carolina's program efficient thanks to continued collaboration designed to speed up payment processing. We just want to help as many folks as, as we can as quickly as we can. Still, 
farmer knows there's room for improvement. I can't say enough how much I appreciate you because you took a lot of stress off of it. It took much longer than necessary for Kay Blinson to get her assistance. I really deeply appreciate it. But all of those emails to us eventually paid off. She now joins roughly 13,000 others helped by the North Carolina Homeowner Assistance Fund. I can tell you this, we're just so glad that you finally have the stability. Without you, I would still be dealing <laughs> I'd still be dealing with a lot of stuff, so thankfully it's behind me. The state continues to say loan servicing companies' role in all of this remains the slowest part of the process, an area the state doesn't have much control over. Nate Morabito, WCNC Charlotte. More Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Folks, come interact with us on social media. So let us know what you think about Flashpoint or if there's anything you want us to cover or maybe a guest you'd like for us to invite on. And as always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. And we'll see you back here next weekend.